Father, as we have gathered this morning, uh, an assembly that has come together for a specific purpose, we ask that you would help us. Would you grant us hearts that are able to open wide enough to give all the joy that we have, to exult in the king that you have set over us, our King Jesus Christ. As we sing this song together, reading these words written down long ago to instruct our hearts in worship, would you grant us a new level of gratitude? Would you help us to see him as our majestic, blessed, and perfect king, the one you have given to reign over us forever? Would you grant us that and so many more blessings we, right now we ask in his mighty name. Amen. Is it ever too late to say thank you? That was a question that President Barack Obama asked back in 2015. The occasion was a Medal of Honor ceremony. You might say a debt of gratitude that had long been overdue that was finally being paid. A soldier by the name of William Shemin fought bravely in World War I. He saw many of his comrades fall in the field and sustained a total of 29 injuries going to retrieve injured soldiers. Shortly after the war was over, he succumbed to his injuries, but he, he was not widely recognized for some time. In fact, it would go on for, for 86 years before that debt of gratitude was finally paid. A soldier remembered for making the ultimate sacrifice. Thankfulness expressed from a nation to a family who lost a loved one. You know, it's Memorial Day weekend, and uh, it's a time where we as a nation remember our fallen soldiers, those who gave their lives, making the ultimate sacrifice to protect the freedoms of our country, the United States. You can think of Memorial Day, in essence, as us saying a collective thank you once a year to make good on that debt of gratitude in one small way together. I hope, as a Christian, you want to be the sort of person that makes good on what Scripture calls you to do, to give honor where honor is due. And so on Memorial Day tomorrow... I hope you feel a sense of thanks welling up in your heart as you think about those who have given their lives. I also hope you think more deeply about gratitude. Because in essence, the Christian life is one of paying in a, a perpetual debt of gratitude. I mean, think about what Christians are. They are people who serve a king who gave his very life for them to secure their eternal salvation, the ultimate price, which means there's an infinite debt of gratitude that Christians are called to pay again and again. How do you even start giving thanks for a sacrifice like that? Well, Psalm 21 is here to instruct us for just such an occasion. It is a song given to God's people to help them give thanks for their king and the victory they saw him bring. And as we study it together, I hope it will help us to, yes, 
have gratitude to our great King Jesus, to give thanks for our King and for the victory that we will see him bring. Now, psalms are of different types as we have been studying them. You may have uh, picked up on that. This is one often called a royal psalm. That means it's one about the king God has placed over his people. Uh, usually royal psalms are songs sung by a congregation about the king and the blessings that the king brings to the people. And Psalm 21 is no exception. Uh, what's unique about it, though, is that it's a psalm that is paired with another one, Psalm 20. Uh, you see, the occasion for Psalm 21 is something that Psalm 20 introduced. Psalm 20 is a song that the congregation sang before a big, scary battle. They, they gathered around their king and they sang a prayer asking God to give their king victory. Look at Psalm 20, verse 9, the, the verse right before our passage this morning. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. God's people ask, save the king. Give him victory in this battle to come. That sets the stage for Psalm 20. A psalm after that battle, after God has given them victory, a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. You, you can see that in the first and last verses of Psalm 21. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. The king is, is glad for God's strength that was shown, and he is praising God for the victory God gave. Then verse 13, the very end. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. That's the top and tail that tells you this whole thing is a song of thanks to God for victory. But very often in the Psalms and in Hebrew poetry, when you have something beginning and ending in the same place, it highlights what comes in the middle. And what comes in the middle are two different things that correspond to our two points. Uh, one is a focus on the king, and the other is a focus on the, his enemies. Our two points this morning are as follows. First, give thanks for your king in verses 2 through 7. And then in verses 8 through 12, and the victory he will bring. 8 through 12, the victory he will bring. So that, that's what this whole psalm is about. Give thanks for your king and the victory he will bring. Let's begin in 2 through 7. Give thanks for your king. Now you have to imagine the moment a bit to capture the magic of what's happening here. Imagine you have just watched a vicious army that had threatened you and everyone you loved you would watch that army be confronted by your brave and valorous king and his army behind him. And you had watched that king defeat your enemies. You had watched safety restored for the nation you loved. And in that moment, as that strong and proud king returned to the midst of the congregation, in that moment, everyone breaks into song. That song begins, hearts full, recounting what it is God has just done. He has answered the prayers of his king for victory. 
You see that in verses 2 and in verse 4. You have given him his heart's desire and not withheld the request of his lips. The king asked for victory and God gave it to him. Verse 4, he asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. The king asked that this battle would not be his last one. That he would return from going out to defend his people. And here he stands. God has answered his prayer. He has heard his plea. And your king stands among you. Because God answers the prayers of his anointed. What confidence that must have given the people. To have heard the prayers and now seen their king emerge victorious. The song also focuses on the honor that the king has gathered for himself in this victory. You see that in verses 3 through 5. For you meet him with rich blessings. You have set a crown of fine gold upon his head. Kids, if you don't have anything else to take away from this, you can take that this sermon is about a king having a crown placed on his head by God. All right, think about it. Who is the most honor, honored person to put a crown on someone's head? There's no one higher than God himself. And, and yet the image here is of God placing a, a golden crown upon the king. Now, this would not be the, the royal crown that the king would receive at his coronation. Now, this was the, the type of crown that was used for specific moments of honor, given to a dignitary or, or someone who had done great service. This is God saying, job well done, and placing a trophy upon his king's head for the moment that he rose to meet. That image is matched with verse 5 explicitly saying that there is glory gathered from his victory. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. We know intrinsically, don't we, that to the winner goes the glory. Our, our family is not from Indiana, which means there's a few rites of passage we have to go through to be considered true Hoosiers. Uh, one of them, we, we did this weekend, we actually watched the movie Hoosiers for the first time. Uh, I'm not spoiling anything. It's been out long enough. But you know the drama of the movie. The, the basketball team is struggling. It's going nowhere. And, and then there's this pivotal moment where the coach has a conversation with someone a little antagonistic about the team. And, and this woman declares, she says, if you win a game for them, that they'll treat you like a god for a few months. But just as soon, you'll be forgotten. That's kind of the theme of the movie. It ends with this shot. After they've won the, the whole national, the state championship, it ends with a shot of the, a picture of the team and the coach. State champions up on the wall of the gym. There's a, a certain fleeting glory that comes for emerging victorious, isn't there? We celebrate the team that wins. We celebrate the king that conquers. In this moment, God's people recognize the glory that their king has gathered for himself. 
in winning this battle, he has proven he is stronger than the kings that came against him. He has proven he is a king to be looked up to, to be admired. And yet, did you notice? It is a glory that's given to him. God is the one that granted him the salvation. And God is the one that gave him this glory. Even his exploits in battle are a gift from the God under which even the king serves. Uh, that becomes even more obvious in the last two verses there, six through seven. That focuses on the source of the king's strength. That is his faith in a faithful God. Verse six, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Remember, it's David who wrote this psalm, who gave it to the choir master for the congregation to sing about Israel's kings. And if there's one thing we can say about David, for all of his flaws, he delighted in the Lord his God. The king's great delight is not in the glory that comes from victory. It is in the God who gives him the victory. And we see the source of that in verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. At the end of the day, the king conquers by faith alone. And by the grace, the covenant love of his God who has promised to give his people victory through his king. So this is not a song of a self-aggrandizing man with an ego trip. This is not someone who wants to be thought great of, certainly more highly than he deserves. Now this is a song given to God's people to help them give thanks for the king that God has given them. The king that went out to battle and returned victorious. Now, that's all well and good. That was what it was about for David and for the sons of, Israel, of David that came after him. But what does it have to do with us? Living so many thousands of years later in Indianapolis, Indiana, as Hoosiers, what does this have to do with us? Well, one grave mistake we would make would be to apply the, this, this psalm to earthly military or political leaders. To take these words and apply them to people with some measure of authority, let's say in government or a general or someone with military might. Now we need to keep our eyes on David's son. The fact that we serve a king, a king that is of the line of David. A king who said, my kingdom is not of this world. A king whose followers aren't to take up the sword or shield or spear or even smart bomb to try and defend him. You must remember that we are followers of King Jesus. And the way he conquers, even though it's very different, is much greater than even great King David. Did you pick up on the ways that this psalm teaches you about your King Jesus? Uh, if there's any question about whether or not this is a psalm intended to be a messianic psalm, that is a, about the Messiah to come, who is King Jesus, it was understood that way for thousands and thousands of years before we have arrived. In fact, even non-Christians have understood it this way. Rabbi Solomon Zaki actually argued that Jews should stop interpreting this as a messianic psalm 
because Christians were using it to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. So how does it point us to that? Let, let me just walk you through a few of the ways. Who was the king who utterly trusted in his God? Who found his soul safe and secure even in the midst of great suffering? Who was the king who achieved the ultimate victory for God's people? Who did so not with swords or spears, but with sacrifice? Who was the king that went out to battle and achieved victory, but that did not come back alive? At least not initially. But was... But, but the same king also took back up his life and was given lengths of days forever. Who is the king who has been given all glory and power? Who is crowned above all other kings as the king of kings? Who is the king whose glory is most seen in the salvation God brought to his people? You see, brothers and sisters, this song of thanksgiving for a king is a song of thanksgiving for King Jesus. It's a song thanking Jesus for the salvation he brought to us, dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, defeating sin and death and the devil so that we could be safe and secure forever. Now what does that mean for you? It means you have reason to sing. To sing in the small skirmishes and, and sing in the big battles. To sing thanks to your king, no matter what stage of life you're in. Uh, think about the small skirmishes. Jesus told us to pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, that's pretty comprehensive. That means every part of your life under the lordship of Christ, is an arena where there is a bit of a battle going on between the kingdom of heaven and the world in opposition to him. So when you get on your knees and you pray, you're right in the midst of the thick of it. The thick of it and you have a chance to see your king win another victory. When you get on your knees and you pray for a church, that has grown cold in its love and need, is in need of renewal and revival. And you see that very thing happen. You see God answer that prayer. You have seen your king win another victory. When you get on your knees and you pray for your next door neighbor who desperately needs to know the Lord. And when you see an opening where they are suddenly willing to hear about King Jesus, you are seeing your king win another victory. When you get on your knees, even when you're discouraged, and you pray for that besetting sin that you just can't seem to get over, and you pray and you pray, and one day you find it's as if the chains have been broken off of you. The shackles of your sin are gone. Brothers and sisters, in that day you have seen your king win another victory. You see, the Christian life is one of praying, and seeing the victories that King Jesus wins in these small skirmishes, the many battles that we find ourselves in day in and day out. And yet there's an even more profound way that we are to sing. Of the biggest battle 
the one that's already in the past, a, a reason to give thanks no matter if you're discouraged or if you're on a mountaintop. And that, of course, is the battle that Jesus won on the cross. Some days you, you gather for worship on Sunday, and it feels like a slog, doesn't it? I mean, maybe you had a hard week. Things in the office just went off rails on Monday. By Tuesday or Wednesday, you were ready for that week to be done. By the time Friday got here, you were exhausted. And now it's Sunday. And you frankly just aren't all that excited to come be around anyone. Or maybe you had the best of intentions. You wanted to be here. But as you started getting your family ready to get to church... Well, the wind was taken straight out of your sails. Your kids have gotten on your last nerve and then some. And you walk in thinking more about all the things that you wish were different than you do about what you're gathering to do. Or, or maybe you're just exhausted. Maybe it's just been a long year and you just don't have anything left in the tank. You, you think you should be joyful, but you, you honestly don't feel it. You don't want to fake it. So here you are, sitting in worship, not sure that you can say anything without being a hypocrite. What if we shifted our mindset in moments like that? What if we thought less about coming to church and worshiping as something we had to do and thought of it as a chance to say thank you? What if you looked around at all the people that were present and you thought of them as victories that you have seen your king win? Each of them a trophy of his victory. Each of them a marker, a monument to his grace. What if you thought of the songs we sing, not as just some religious things with nice lyrics to them, but as you get to join your voice with the gathered people of God to say thank you. You know, it's been 2,000 years and it's still not too late to tell Jesus thank you for giving up his life to save you from your sins. I love that song that we sing so often, Jesus, thank you. It says, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Each and every time you gather for worship, you're gathering to say thank you. In 2,000 years, even if he adds another 2,000 on top of it, it won't be too late to do it. Give thanks for your king, but not just for what he's done in the past, also for what he will do in the future. And that's what we see in verses 8 through 12. Give thanks for your king and the victory he will bring. There, there's a stark shift in the tone as we go into verses 8 through 12. No longer is the camera zoomed in on this glorious, victorious king. Instead, it's zoomed in on his despicable enemies. These verses are frankly stark in their pictures of God's judgment. Judgment on people in opposition to him and judgment that comes 
through his anointed king. There are three major images that are seen here. The first in verse 8 is of searching judgment. Searching judgment. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Usually in the Psalms, the right hand of God is something that is uh, an uh, instrument of help and protection. To be at God's right hand is to be right in the place you want to be, right where he can help you and right where he can sustain you. But here, the right hand is used for something very different, to reach out and grab his enemies. You might say the long arm of the Lord is being used to bring about justice. Uh, back in 2005, there was a criminal that learned a new meaning to the, word, the term the long arm of the law. In Miami Beach, he uh, did a random act of violence. He, he took a bottle and threw it at two people, hitting and injuring one. What he did not expect was that someone would give chase, someone of gargantuan proportions, uh, newly installed Miami Beach police officer, Shaquille O'Neal. Shaq was able to make sure the bad guy didn't get away, and I, I couldn't help but think of the metaphor. The long arm of the law was a little bit longer on that day. Shaq was quoted in the Miami Herald as saying, for this incident, I don't want to be credited as an individual who does police work. I want to be credited as a Miami Beach police officer. There's something good when even the most reclusive of God's enemies are reached by his justice. Certainly in temporal judgments, like someone being arrested by police. But ultimately, this is a, a prophecy that there will be no one that escapes the judgment that God's king will bring upon his enemies. There will be nowhere for them to hide. The Lord's arm is too long. Verses 9 through, 10, 9 through 10 shift the metaphor again. Now it is of consuming judgment. It, it's an image of fire consuming fuel in an oven. It says, you will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. This judgment of God is so consuming. His wrath so intense that there's nothing left. Even their descendants are extinguished from this earth. And you might even say there's no memory of them left. There's one more image in verses 11 through 12. That is of his enemies fleeing from judgment. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. And you will aim at their faces with their bows. The, the image is of some mischief makers setting a trap for God's king. Only little do they know that they are the ones being trapped. In a moment, their plot will unravel. And in a moment, they will be confronted with the king's justice. The, the image of a, an archer aiming directly at your face is the image of them turning tail and running from the king's justice. Now these words would have been sung by the congregation in expectation that their future was secure because their king would protect them against their enemies. 
the, the Amorites and the Philistines and the Egyptians, none of them would be able to stand against God's king. And that meant that they would dwell safe and secure. There would have been a joyful expectation that their future was bright as long as God's king was executing God's judgment. Now what about us? How do we apply these images of a king executing judgment on earthly enemies? Well, as I was studying this, I couldn't help but think of a passage that we have studied uh, just a few months ago, 2 Thessalonians 1, describing the judgment that Jesus will bring when one day he returns to this earth in his second coming. Let me read these verses for you. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you who believed. Did you notice the parallels there? There is the appearing of the Lord Jesus. It brings judgment in flaming fire, wrath upon his enemies. And at the end of it all, there is a glorious celebration as King Jesus stands among the congregation of those who have believed and he is glorified in that moment. As Christians, as long as we are living in this life, we still have a victory yet to come. We look forward to Jesus' return and the promise victory over sin, yes, death, yes, the devil, yes, and all other enemies of God wherever they are found. And brothers and sisters, this coming victory is meant to be a great balm to our souls. My dear brothers and sisters, is there some reality in this world that has you despairing and distressed? Is there some sin that you're not sure you'll ever get over? Do you find yourself anxious about the angry opposition that you see Christians facing in this world? Do you find your heart discouraged just because you're not sure what the future will bring and it doesn't seem like things are going to get any better? But if Jesus' coming means victory for you, then really it's just a waiting game. It means you can outlast any sin you struggle with. It means you can endure any persecution you might have to. It means ultimately your future is a bright one. Your best days are always in front of you. If your hope is in your returning King Jesus and the victory he will bring. But let's recognize there's a flip side to this coin. One that has a sober weight to it. Because to return to the question that we started this sermon with, is it ever too late to say thank you? 
And the second coming of Jesus and the judgment he brings answers that question, yes. Yes, for some, it will be too late to say thank you. If you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand with God and you do not bow your knee and your heart to King Jesus, I want most badly of all for you to hear this. Jesus is a good king. He is deserving of your full heart's devotion. And he calls you to turn from your sin and to trust him. If you do that, you will find him to be a merciful and good and loving king. You'll find full forgiveness. But friend, it's a limited time offer. For each and every one of us, there comes a last day. A final chance to bow the knee to King Jesus. If you don't say thank you to King Jesus in this life, when you meet him one day when he returns, it'll be too late for you. His return will not be good news. His turn will bring eternal sorrow and grief. His return will seal your fate under the very wrath of God. The full weight of your sins, the punishment that you will endure forever. Friend, we want you to have the same future hope that we do as Christians. To look to that day of Jesus' return with delight and not dread. Would you say thank you to him today? Would you find him to be your savior, your friend, and your king by putting your trust in him? If you do, you won't be disappointed. Jesus will make up for all the sorrows you've experienced in this life, including the sorrows your own sins have inflicted upon you. Friend, make sure that your eternity is a blessed one. Find refuge in Jesus. Is it ever too late to say thank you? Well, in one sense, yes. But for Christians, the answer is no. See, the wonderful thing about our king and the victory we get to see him bring is it means we will never run out of reasons to say thank you. No matter how many years we live on this earth or how many millennia we live around the throne of our exalted King Jesus. No matter how many songs we sing or how poetic the words we find, there will always be another chance to say thank you because of the victory our King Jesus has won. I love the words from 1 Corinthians. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's a song that you could sing for eternity, and you will, by his grace. Let's pray.